It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. So I got to be honest, I have no idea what we're going to talk about today. But then again, most of the time we don't. But today I feel extra unsure. All I know is that I have one thing to start off with. Well, shoot. Was that like, well, shoot, as in like, well, go ahead or like, well, shoot. Well, like- I think by the inflection <laughs> of my voice, you can probably tell that it's not a, oh, shoot. It's like, oh, shoot. So yeah, go ahead. Let it rip, wit. Let it rip. Well, as you know, Jason, and some of our listeners know, at the end of our episodes these days, we have a segment called Frequently Asked Queries. And so I like to go and prep some of them before we record each episode. And I just wanted to start off with one because it's like semi-serious. I'm sure it was meant serious as a, as a query, but it also just made me laugh, like <laughs> just the ways in which we show up in Google results. And this query was, what should the inside of an eggplant look like? <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why that made me laugh. But um, I figure you might be able to give a really good answer for that. It depends on which varietal of eggplant. If we're talking, I suppose, a regular varietal or even a Japanese eggplant, the inside should be any gradation of color from a whitish to a milkyish to a tan even. It should have small seeds. Um, it shouldn't be gelatinous at all. It should be firm to the touch. You'd, if, if it's mushy inside, that's gone bad. Uh, and conversely, if the outside of the skin, you can actually push your finger through easily, then it's also overripe. So yeah, I would say look for the proper coloration, look for small seeds, make sure that it's the flesh inside of the eggplant is firm, and you're probably going to have a good experience. However, I find, Whitney, that a lot of people really don't know how to cook eggplant properly. They either overcook it to where it becomes mush, like baby food consistency, or they undercook it where it's still rubbery. So I find that eggplant is somewhat of a challenging vegetable to make and make well. Agreed. And I am somebody who really dislikes eggplant when it's cooked poorly, but when it's cooked well, I really enjoy it. Every once in a while, though, I get to this point, and it's not just with eggplant. This actually happens to me with mushrooms as well, where I'll be eating it and enjoying it. And then sometimes I get too in my head about it, and I'll get really grossed out, and I can't eat anymore. Does that ever happen to you? I don't. Like you psych yourself out while think you're so. eating? I really? Think so. Yeah, I, I, think, <laughs> I think if I get a few bites in and I'm committed, I'm committed the whole way. Is it a consistency thing or a flavor thing for you or both? I think it's more the consistency. That makes sense. And you that know how... Sense. Well, sometimes mushrooms, the flavor I'm into for a certain extent, but maybe it's the combination with the two, whereas eggplant's pretty neutral in taste, I would say. It kind of absorbs whatever it's being mixed with. So. I think I think the only the only context where eggplant is allowed to be mushy in my book is if one is making baba ganoush. Right, right. Then there's an expectation. Yeah. And what we're really talking about too, I think, Whitney, is 
There's also a big part of expectation that comes into enjoyment of food. Ooh, okay. Such as if we name things, and this happens a lot in the plant-based world, the keto world, paleo, the whole, I don't know, I guess alternative lifestyles of eating, if you want to call alternative lifestyles of eating, that they'll say, oh, it's a quote burger, or it's a quote pizza, or it's a burrito, or it's a this, or it's a that. And there's there's a lot of I guess, substitutes and, you know, meat analogs and things like that. But for me, when something is called something like a pizza, and this is funny because my early days of chefing, I was doing 100% raw, like the first three years. And the pizzas weren't really pizzas. It was kind of like a dehydrated flax rosemary cracker with some tomato sauce and dehydrated veggies. They're like, it's a pizza. It's like, "Mm, it's kind of cat food on a cracker. Kind of like what you would get if you went to Giuliano's Raw in Santa Monica? Yeah, like the old school days of gourmet raw food where they were like, it's a pizza, it's a burrito, it's a blah, blah, blah. And you're like, mm, I will say, I, I recall the pizza at Giuliano's to be pretty good. It is. And, and like it's one it's, of the better. Yeah, it, it is? You're saying this as if it's still around. Oh, it is. Well, some, somewhere <laughs> Giuliano is probably still making food somewhere. We've lost track of him. He's gone off the radar a little bit. Last I heard, he was living in Ojai on a commune, but that was a few years ago. And actually, speaking of Giuliano's and raw food, Genabai Owens also came up on our keyword analytics. So somebody was searching for her and found our podcast as a result. Well, you know what's interesting about that is because all the way back to episode number two, which is my story, Jason's story of pursuing music, acting, and culinary, I talked about my origin story as a chef and how Janabai. Before Revolution, she owned the Euphoria Company in Santa Monica in the heyday of raw foods, and she was the one who recommended the Living Light Culinary Institute for, for me to go to chef school. So I mentioned her in that episode, which is probably why she's coming oh, up on Google searches. Oh, got it. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Janabai was the person who was like, oh, you know there's a vegan raw food chef school, right? And I was like, no. So she was the one who actually directed me there. And you know, a month later, I'm up in Northern California at culinary school. So shout out to Janabai. Well, there you go, folks. A couple queries at the beginning of an episode, which we usually save for the end. And this actually brings me to an interesting segue for a topic. That <laughs> I'm very like proud of myself right now for this one because, you know, you're talking about eggplants and eggplants are often used as an emoji for something sexual, <laughs> right? And so now, especially with millennials and younger generations, it's like when you see an eggplant, there's like a sexual image that comes along with it. Would you say that for yourself at all, Jason? Or do you think you're a little too old for that mentality? (laughs) No, I don't think it's about an age thing. I think it's about the bombardment and overuse of that emoji. It's just so much, I think, in the social media lexicon now of, you know, using that to signify a penis (laughs) that I think it's, yeah, I do think of it. I mean, every time I see an eggplant now, it's like, okay, all right, got it. So, but even like the words that you were using to describe the eggplant, like firm and flesh, and like yours, if you go back and listen to what you were saying, Jason, it's got to have a nice curvature. It's got to have a nice curvature to it. Good color. Good color. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's funny <laughs> can't be too soft otherwise it's really yeah, unpleasant it's a disappointment then it's a disappointment yeah. for everyone involved yeah yeah been there <laughs> been there well been that there. leads me to something that 
I wrote down in my list of topics to explore one day for the show. So we might as well jump into this one. And that deep into the spreadsheet, Whitney, deep into that spreadsheet. <laughs> yes, I have quite the spreadsheet for our show with multiple tabs or sheets on it and lots of tracking and data collection. And one of them is ghosting, which I think is actually interesting because my notes around ghosting were not just like romantic ghosting, but ghosting can happen to us in our platonic relationships, as well as professionally, we can ghost people. And we kind of talked about this a bit recently in the sense where you'll reach out to somebody and they'll just stop responding to your texts, right? Or you'll apply for a job and you'll never hear from them or, you know, something will happen on a professional level and suddenly you're like cut out of somebody's life with no explanation, right? And through some of my digging into why ghosting happens. I think some of it is attributed to overcommitment or the inability to say no. And I think it's a big communication thing. I think actually ghosting is a a way that people handle discomfort. It's like, this is too uncomfortable to address. So I'm just not going to say anything or do anything at all. It's almost like it's become an emotional escape hatch for people where they don't have to take responsibility or accountability for responding, closing the container, giving people a proper response. That's, of course, an individual assessment. But I do think that ghosting has become such a a culturally acceptable thing, for better or for worse. It's an interesting thing. It really is, Whitney, because you know, as irritated as I get when people don't respond to say, multiple texts or multiple DMs or multiple emails. I'm also guilty of that. You know, if I look through my email, you know, I have 21 drafts in my drafts folder in my email that I need to send that I've been sitting on. You know, for as irritated as I get, I suppose it's also an inwardly directed irritation that I also lag. I also have to take responsibility on myself for not being a great communicator sometimes and not necessarily ghosting people. I think more of what I do is delay, which could be interpreted as ghosting. Exactly. And I think maybe some people have the intention of just delaying a response. And and I too have reflected a lot on this myself, and I'm trying to work through that. And I think one of the ways that's been really helpful is developing more language that feels more comfortable. For example, I just found an article as I was pulling up some things to reference here. And this one is from this website, EliteDaily.com. And the article is 15 rejection texts that are way nicer than ghosting. And again, this is not just about romance. I think ghosting is typically attributed to when you go on a date with somebody, then you never hear from them again, right? I think it's really nice if you can find a way to communicate and and basically push past your comfort zone, right? So in this case, it's a romance scenario, but you could actually use some of these messages to send to people in in lots of different scenarios. So the first one was like, hi, thanks for a fun night. I think you're really awesome, but I have to be honest, I didn't feel the chemistry. No doubt you're going to find someone amazing. Now that might seem like kind of superficial and uncomfortable to send because you're afraid that it's going to be misinterpreted or hurt somebody's feelings. But we have to remember that hurting someone's feelings can happen if you don't talk to them at all. I mean, even for me, (laughs) I'm haunted pun intended, by this one situation I had when I was doing online dating years ago, 
I did it for a stint of like a few months. And then I was like, this is not for me, but I'm really glad that I tried it out. And I went on this one date with this guy and it still haunts me in a way because I never heard from him again. And his like whole reaction to me was so perplexing. Oh, and yeah. I told you this story. <laughs> Is this the guy that was like, <laughs> he said that you didn't look like you looked in your photos? No, he didn't say it, but that was my assumption. And I felt so self-conscious because I thought I did a really good job using photos that represented me well. And just like most people, I'm sure I, you know, you're pulling in your best photos or whatever, but I think they were all recent. And some of them were selfies. Some of them were photos I had professionally taken of me, you know, for years afterwards. And still every once in a while we'll do this. I'll like think back and I'm like, wow, was it like what I was wearing that night? Like what, what was it? And I don't know if that's how he felt, but I just remember assuming that. And cause like he was immediately weird with me from the get go. And I never heard from him again. There wasn't even like, hey, nice to meet you or, you know, like nothing. And that's happened a couple of times. There was one other guy that I went on a few dates with and I wasn't really feeling it. So I was kind of grateful that nothing happened. But then part of me was also kind of offended. Like, I wish that he had said something, but I, I it's so common. And this is the thing is I feel like people just don't have the courage to say something like, I just don't feel the chemistry because they think they're doing you a favor or they're avoiding it and saving themselves some discomfort. But the reality is some people like me <laughs> might spend a lot of time thinking about these things, even when it wasn't a super meaningful connection. And I think that that kind of brings up our own insecurities, right? I mean, Jason, this also kind of happened with you. I remember... <laughs> We're bringing out some of our, our um, the skeletons in our closets here, which is part of what we do on the show. But remember when you went on that date and you got stood up? Oh, man. I haven't thought about that in a few years. <laughs> that was the only time that I've ever been stood up. And I remember you yeah. also, like, it wasn't like you were emotionally attached to this woman, just like I wasn't emotionally attached to either of the guys I just mentioned. It's just that your ego is bruised when these things happen because you're a like kind of shocked by them because they've never happened to you before. And also you just sit there wondering why, and if you could have prevented them or, you know what I mean? Like a lot of those things go through your mind. Is that how you felt about it too? My initial reaction was like, do you know who I am? (laughs) Talk about ego. (laughs) Fucking loser. (laughs) I mean, my initial thing was, I did actually have a reaction like that, but it was more so that I had been looking forward to it. I had got myself all ready for a hike and, you know, put my whatever hiking gear on and had my, you know, hat, my shoes and my water bottle and the whole thing. And the hiking trail we went to is not close to my house at all. So it was driving there. Right. And it was all of the preparatory steps in leading up to it and then being like, (laughs) And it was funny because she had completely forgotten about it. I texted her and I'm like, hey, where are you? You know, I'm I'm here. And and then she didn't text me back until like five to 10 minutes after the time we were supposed to meet. And then was like, oh, it was something like, oh, it was supposed to be, oh, it was this day, blah, 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 da, da, da. Oh, hey, 
could we reschedule? And I'm like, fuck no. Fuck no, we can't reschedule. No. Like we, I sent her multiple texts. I confirmed the day and the time. And in that, in that instance, I'm like, hell no. No, no, no. I did all this. I followed up with you. I told you I was excited about like, again, I felt like I did my due diligence and showed my interest. And then she just, it didn't seem like it was that big of a deal to her. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, it was the first and only time I've been stood up, but, but my ego definitely took a hit, Whitney. Of course. I was like, I'm not giving you a second chance The hell with you. I feel like you were also a little upset about like, not just like, um, like your pride, but I think that you were struggling with it emotionally and it, it brought up a lot of sadness or something for you. Well, it was also around that time when I was just starting to feel emotionally available enough to start dating after a really bad breakup of which, you know, you saw me through and, and you were kind enough to give me a lot of support through that breakup. It was a tough breakup. You know, I was in a really dark place processing the emotions behind that breakup. So it was also kind of the excitement of like, Ooh, I'm going on a date. I haven't been in, in a date in a really long time. And then that happened. And it was like taking the wind out of my sails, you know, getting punched in the gut a little bit for that reason too. Right. Yeah. It's, it's really fascinating. And, and I, I think my heart goes out to people because it is really hard in this, these scenarios. Like did she actually forget? I mean, actually, something like this happened to somebody I know on a professional level the other day who was conducting interviews via online um, chatting. It wasn't Zoom. It was another service. And this person just didn't show up. And half an hour went by. And I felt like annoyed for them as they were sharing this experience. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, how dare this person not show up to an interview? Like, that's so rude. They should be communicating. And then they finally did. And they said they were having tech problems. And I got really egoed. And I was examining that. I mean, I got really egoed. Is that what I just said? <laughs> my ego got really triggered. And I was examining that because I don't know why I was so worked up about something that had nothing to do with me, but it, it felt like someone was taking advantage of somebody I know. And I felt kind of protective over it, but also just like the side of me, the self-righteous side of me was like, ugh, like, I can't believe you would use an excuse that you could, you had tech problems. Like we're in 2020 and everybody's doing video conferencing right now. Like you should never have tech problems and it shouldn't take you half an hour to communicate that, you know? And I just got onto this self-righteous pedestal and that just fascinated me. And I still have to kind of dig in and see like, what is that all about? Like, why was I judging this person so much? My point is, is that this can happen professionally as well too. And, you know, I get triggered if I have a meeting with somebody and they don't call me or initiate the meeting right away or within a few minutes. Like it's so frustrating. And I know that we all have our scenarios in which we're running late for some emergency or, or a true problem, but it's the lack of communication. And I think when it, maybe what I was triggered by in that scenario that I just brought up is that how hard is it to just send a quick email or text message and say, Hey, I'm running late because I can't figure this out. Like, why should it take? 30 minutes when somebody's waiting for you. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I'm sure this has happened to you as well, Jason. And Oh yeah, for sure. 
And actually, I mean, this has happened to me both professionally and with friends, like pre-COVID. <laughs> feels like forever ago, we used to do these things where we would meet up with somebody. And let's say you you say that you're going to go meet for coffee. Like I have about a five-minute buffer time. If If somebody doesn't arrive within five minutes or at least communicate with me that they're running late, I get really irritated. And it's like, I think for me, it's the waste of time feeling because if somebody was going to be late, they probably knew it earlier on. Like if I get in the car and I plug an address into my navigation and it tells me that I'm going to run late, I'm going to immediately tell that person while I'm on my way, even if that means I have to pull over, you know, or just call them, whatever it is. It's a courtesy Um, thing. Yeah. But it's like, if you tell somebody five minutes afterwards, technically, unless you're only five minutes away from that place, But even that, like, let's say you live five minutes away. If you leave your house at four o'clock for a four o'clock meeting, you know you're going to be late. (laughs) And man, that triggers me anytime somebody is late because this day and age, we have so many ways to communicate with people. But I think part of it is that somebody just won't take accountability for themselves and say like, hey, you know what? I messed up for whatever reason and I'm running behind. There's so much shame in that that I think some people would rather just not communicate at all and pretend it's not happening. But the problem with this, and I think this is part of the roots of ghosting romantically, professionally, personally on any level, is that it creates a um, a tear in trust, you know, whereas somebody starts to feel like they can't trust you or that you don't respect them. Or then they just wonder, is something wrong with you? I mean, this is an interpretation I think that happens a lot romantically, similar to what I said. Like there was something about that situation with that guy that I was kind of ghosted by where it actually affected me for years, even though it wasn't like a huge deal at the time. It did wound me in some way. And I think that that's what happens in a lot of these scenarios where where ghosting does not actually do anything beneficial. It's like a temporary bandage over a problem, but that wound could still be there for that person. And I think that's why we need to really dig in and have compassion and say, hey, it's uncomfortable to communicate this, but I'm going to out of compassion and kindness and respect for this other person so that they won't have that wound there that I could possibly leave by ghosting them. I think it's important that that you brought that up, Whitney, because in my mind, it's choosing one pain over another. Here's what I mean when I say that, because as you talk about wounding people by being non-communicative or ignoring them intentionally or not by ghosting, sending a text, and and I've gotten a lot better the past probably three years at this. And, and I've, I remember in one case, I had been on two dates with someone a few years ago and I just wasn't feeling it. And I knew that they were feeling it because they wanted to ask me out for a third time. You know, it was, it was one of those things of like, Hey, let's, you know, let's hang out on Friday. And I remember sitting in my car and trying to, trying to speak from the heart through text, like a more elongated, I suppose, personal version of what you read earlier. You know, I think you're a wonderful person. I, I had a great time. I'm just not really feeling that kind of magnetism or that spark here. And I really appreciate the time and, and, you know, just, you have such a wonderful spirit and I, you know, I just wish you all the best. And I remember just feeling in the pit of my stomach like that, not that a little bit, not nausea, but like that heavy knot in the stomach feeling. 
But here's the thing, you know, might they have been hurt by that? Yeah. Would they more than likely be hurt by ghosting? Yeah. So it's a bit tough because I think on some level it's pain or pain. You're choosing one pain over the other. But to your point, if we can be in integrity and be respectful and be communicative, even if we're delivering a text or a voicemail or even in person saying, you know, I don't think this is going to work out, then at least, I don't know, the energy is more in alignment with respect and integrity rather than just not communicating at all. Because then there's pain, but then there's no integrity. There's pain without integrity. And it's not like you can go through life without feeling rejected or rejecting somebody else. So you might as well practice it out of respect for that person that you're communicating with. And I think that's kind of an interesting thing. Like, what exactly do we think we're getting out of something when we avoid it out of discomfort? Because these scenarios come up in so many different forms throughout our life. And so as I've started developing a lot on an emotional level, I think I try to challenge myself in those uncomfortable situations. And one tool that's really helpful for me is just talking to someone else. And as you were telling the story, Jason, about communicating with this person that you didn't want to go out on a date, I'm fairly certain that you and I discussed this. Like I helped you no, this figure particular out what you were going to say. Is that right? No. I, yeah, it Maybe has. Maybe it's happened a few times. And it's also, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where I, in those kind of communications, I don't want to be flippant or condescending. I genuinely want to speak from the heart or try to as much as possible. But the, the one that I was referencing, no, I just remember sitting in my car alone kind of semi-agonizing over it for like 20 minutes before I sent it. And then once I hit send, her reply was like, thank you so much for letting me know. Like I re she, at least through text, she expressed appreciation for that form of communication. So that, that kind of like got rid of the knot in my stomach, you know? I feel like I would have appreciated that too. I mean, it's not like it's, it's not going to hurt. That's the other thing is like, oh, maybe if I ghost somebody out, I can protect them from feeling pain. But the reality is that pain will probably be there no matter what in this type of scenario. So you might as well rip off the bandage and just... Yeah. I don't know if it's as much trying to protect the other person from pain as it is the individual, as you said, trying to avoid being uncomfortable. And, mm. you know, it makes me wonder how many people are avoiding a lot of things in life because they're uncomfortable, not just conversations, but taking risks, going after dreams. I mean... Well, isn't that the whole point of this podcast? That is, yeah, of course it's the, it's, it's the whole point. Is that you can't avoid discomfort. You know, there are people that try tooth and nail to avoid, you know, being uncomfortable and, and avoid experiencing any kind of pain or resistance in life. But discomfort and pain and resistance are parts of the human experience. And so try as we might, try as we may to spiritually bypass it or act like it doesn't exist or, you know, say like everything's all good all the time. I mean, there's a lot of psychological techniques I think people use to skirt around pain, discomfort and resistance, but they're there. And certainly as Whitney said, you know, one of the things we like to do here is, is encourage you as we encourage ourselves to go into those places and not avoid them. Right. Well, you know, this leads me to something else that ties into this, which is Kind of going back to when you, your reaction of don't you know who I am type of thing. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. all jokes aside with that, it makes me think about, and also it ties into this story you're sharing about this woman that you didn't feel into. You know, for all you know, she could have been feeling like, don't you know who I am towards you? And 
it's kind of interesting when you step back and examine those words, because I've certainly been in situations where I felt like somebody didn't really see me for who I am, and yet they decide to reject me anyways. And I've, I'm like, I feel like my ego has been bruised because I thought that we could be a good match or whatever, or you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of interesting how some people don't want to be with you. I've been in this situation a number of times with men where I felt like I was a good person for them and I felt really confident about it. And then I was surprised that they didn't want to date me. And I'm interested in exploring that too from both sides, Jason. So like the side of, wow, I can't believe you didn't show up. Don't you know how great of a person I am? And you don't know what you're missing out on. There's that side. And then there's the other side where you just aren't interested in dating somebody and, and feeling like it's not a match. Like, how do you get to that point? And how do you know that you're not a match with somebody? Because even just a few dates, it can take a while to really get to know someone. And I know you've experienced this a lot in your dating life, Jason. It's like looking for that spark. But a spark with somebody isn't always the greatest indication that you're going to be a fit together. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. It takes so long. And sometimes you hit it off and maybe you experience love at first sight with somebody and then the love fades away and you realize, you know, this isn't quite what you thought it was or things got really tough and you weren't able to weather the storm. And this is part of what makes relationships really challenging. And I think there's these two approaches of A, giving somebody a chance or committing to somebody and really like giving it your best or B, saying like, oh, this isn't working out. I'm not going to waste either of our times. I'm going to move on and try dating somebody else. And I know that you felt this way too, Jason, because I think that you've expressed this to me of just like you're trying to find the right person for yourself, but like you could be on an ongoing quest for your whole life trying to find, quote, the right person. Or you can just decide to really give it your all with one person and and see if you can make it work. Because I kind of have this feeling like you can make it work with anyone. Before you jump in, one other point on this is that I was watching this show. I think it's called Love at First Sight. Is it No, Married at First Sight. And it's actually a really interesting reality show where Americans get matched up through matchmakers and they meet for the very first time on their wedding day. So they go and audition. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) It's a really funny concept, but it is actually really interesting in a lot of ways. So they go into the auditions and the producers and the matchmakers pick some people and then they match them up based on all these different qualities. And then similar to a, what's the term for an arranged marriage where they're basically arranging these people to get married to each other. And they literally meet at their wedding while walking down the aisle. Like the guy is there waiting for the woman at the end of the aisle. And she walks in. That's the very first time they see each other. They don't even know each other's names. Yeah. It's super fascinating, but you get to see these relationships develop and realize that most of these couples, at least in the couple seasons that I've seen of it, Most of them are actually great matches for each other, but they may not be people that they would have considered before. 
there's also another show on Netflix called Love is Blind that had a similar concept where they had to meet and they could talk to each other, but they never got to see each other. And so the whole point was like giving somebody a try based on their personality as opposed to this world we live in that's so based on looks and superficial things, but matching with somebody that you really have a connection with and how some people just cannot get over the physical side of somebody or their age or some of these more superficial elements of it. But sometimes somebody might be a really great match, but you're struggling against all of these superficial things. So dive into that, Jason. I'm curious on your thoughts. It's a thick sandwich. I don't know that I could ever have the gumption to do something like that, first and foremost, of a blind wedding show. I mean, that sounds (laughs) it sounds simultaneously so American and so batshit crazy at the same time. So it's perfect for entertainment value. I don't think I could ever do it. The idea of making it work with anyone. It's an interesting concept, right? Because there, I'm not necessarily saying anyone like, I mean, in my personal experiences, Mm -hmm. and this is actually more of what I'm, I'm not like saying you could randomly be paired up with somebody and make it work, but I'm saying like you, have enough in common with somebody that you should be able to make it work. You know what I mean? And I, I I guess like there's these extremes because we live in this time where there's a high divorce rate, I believe. I haven't looked into it recently, but I think it, you know, a lot of relationships either never get to the point of marriage or people get married and they get divorced versus like in more of an older school mentality of like, or more of a traditional and oftentimes religious mentality of like, when I get married to this person, we're in it forever. Like this is it. And we're committed to each other. And I think some more of the liberal minded viewpoints of like, I'm just in it for until it's no longer feels good or it's no longer convenient or until the next best thing comes and you always have one foot out the door. And It's interesting because I feel conflicted about that as well as I haven't been married yet. I don't know if I will get married. And sometimes I wonder if like, do I not feel sure about getting married because that long-term commitment is super scary? I don't know. It's a weird convention. I mean, you know, for me, I, if I look into my childhood and the patterning that I received from childhood around relationships, my mom and dad were never married. So there's that. And then the other thing, if I look at a lot of people, not all, but a lot of people in my family, my observation, even as a child, and now that I reflect on it as an adult, looking back, they didn't seem all that happy. I mean, they, they were together, but it didn't seem like there was a ton of joyfulness per se. So it is an interesting idea of conventions shifting. I mean, there's a lot shifting right now in terms of sexual identities and kind of the offshoots of the sexual revolution that started, I think, probably in the 60s. And here we are now in the 2020s. We're back in the roaring 20s. And and I myself share your sentiments, Whitney. I see myself being with a life partner. I don't know if that is going to involve marriage. I don't know if that's going to involve anything beyond that. <laughs> but I also, on a totally pragmatic level, marriage as a social contract with the state is pretty awesome with the tax breaks and the financial benefits. So on one hand, it's like, if you're really, really into this person and you are committed, it's like, man, let's save some money. Eh, Why don't we do that? That sounds so not romantic. 
I do think sometimes about how fun it would be to throw a party and have your favorite people there and, you know, a celebration of love and union. I've had thoughts, especially when years ago when I was catering weddings and doing wedding cakes, that's something a lot of people don't know that I did for a few years when I had a catering business. I, I was actually making wedding cakes and catering weddings. And I would see people at their weddings and think like, I think I might want to do this. This is cool. So, Well, the wedding itself is like something I, I hope that I get. To me, like <laughs> marriage, I think the idea of being proposed to and that excitement around that and having this huge celebration, like those all sound amazing. But then there's the other side of it where you're in this long-term relationship with somebody and it really takes both people to be committed. And I think that I guess like the older I get without being married yet, you start to like see more of the downsides to it. Whereas I feel like when I was younger, it was a no brainer. Like, of course, I'm going to get married and this sounds easy and, and so lovely. You know, it was simpler in my mind. But the more relationships I've had over the years, I've seen how challenging even the best of relationships can be. And that like starts to make me feel a little wary. And then also the older you get, the more people you see becoming divorced. And suddenly like some of your friends are getting divorced or having really tough times in their marriages and and choosing to stay in it no matter what. But they seem so miserable. Yeah, and that's really tough to witness, too. Yes, it is. Whereas I feel like when you're younger, if everybody around you is getting married and nobody's been divorced yet it's you don't you just don't have it in front of you or if you were like me where my parents seem very happily married and they've really made it work i think that they're genuinely in a great place and i i can't really imagine them getting divorced but i have seen them go through their ups and downs it's not like it's been perfect but i guess like having that framework having grandparents on my dad's side that were very happily married and my mom's side, her parents got remarried and they seemed quite happy, all things considered. And so I had a lot of great examples of happy married couples in my life. So I think that that kind of added a little bit more of a positive spin versus like what you're describing, Jason. And and that's the thing. It's like it's two people bringing their unique experiences and backgrounds. And going back to ghosting, too, is interesting. I found this article. And it was sharing like some reasons that you might be ghosted by someone. And I think this really ties into this conversation about commitment as well as like, we have no idea unless somebody decides to tell us what they're going through, right? I mean, the first thing on this list is like, maybe there was somebody else and maybe somebody started dating somebody. I, this actually happened to me. This is bringing back some memories. I was dating one guy very casually for a short amount of time. and. Suddenly he ghosted me and I found out through social media that he was dating somebody else. And I think, I don't know if there was any crossover period or maybe he met her and that's when he decided to stop talking to me. I wish that he had communicated that with me, right? He kind of took the easy way out and I had to find out through social media, which wasn't pleasant, but that can certainly be part of the reason and not everybody knows how to communicate those things. The next reason on this list is that they're emotionally immature. And I think actually that can be very true as we've been discussing. It takes a lot of maturity and inner strength and confidence to be able to communicate the reason that you don't want to talk to this person or have this person in your life. 
Another thing is, I think very important for us to consider in any elements of our relationships personally and professionally is that sometimes people are going through something very personal or maybe they're dealing with tough emotions like anxiety. And I think this is actually one of the major reasons or two of there are actually two separate reasons, according to this list, going through something personal that's a struggle and dealing with tough emotions like anxiety. I think I'm willing to guess those are two of the biggest reasons why people ghost you, especially on a professional level. And right now, I know that these are major reasons why I take some time to respond to emails or direct messages or whatever. It's like sometimes we're just overwhelmed or burnt out or we're struggling. And what are we going to do? Like tell a business contact that we're having a lot of anxiety? (laughs) You know what I mean? Or in the case of romance, like are you going to tell someone you just met that you're like, having a really tough time in your life. Mm, yeah, right. It, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And I think even in committed relationships, people have trouble sharing these things because there can be a lot of shame around anxiety and depression and stress. And and this is something that you talk very openly about, Jason. Well, I'll tell you something interesting. Having begun a new relationship at the very beginning of COVID-19, I've referenced Laura in a few episodes now, who I've been seeing since early March. We met March 1st and started dating a couple weeks after that. And we are still dating at the recording time of this recording. And having someone new in my life under the current circumstances, you know, it's not only that I've been experiencing clinical depression for five years and anxiety and suicidal ideation. I've mentioned these things many, many times. It's one of the reasons that we decided to start this podcast, to have really open, frank, conversations about these kind of things. It's not like I've been able to hide those things. And not that I want to, but to your point, Whitney, especially when you initiate a new relationship, it's extremely uncomfortable. And maybe it's also going to a level of tact and respect of when do I actually disclose to this person that I struggle with mental health and have a mental illness? When? How do I broach that with them? But by virtue of being on lockdown several weeks into a new relationship, it kind of magnified and intensified those conversations because the normal, and I don't mean when I say the word distractions, I don't mean this in a bad way, but the normal, I suppose, avenues of distraction in a new relationship, going to the movies, going to see a basketball game, going to the arcade, going to see a concert, a lot of the external things you do when you're courting someone or dating, those were not available. So it was pretty much like, okay, we're going to hang out at the house and make food and watch movies and you know, talk to each other. So I think that my current situation is a bit unique because those normally uncomfortable conversations or conversations that might have happened at a later juncture were happening quicker as a result of we don't have these distractions at our disposal. We just need to figure out who each other are very quickly. It was very unique and unusual in that way. Hmm. Yeah. This is such a fascinating subject matter. I, I found another article. This one came from the Washington Post and how ghosting is the new normal. And one of the big reasons that psychotherapists and researchers have found is that a lot of people just don't know how to have hard conversations and it's been culturally acceptable to avoid them. Or we can find a lot of ways to avoid these challenging things. And I think we live in a society or a time of society in which avoidance is very acceptable, right? And we think about 
a lot of different ways that we avoid or we have coping mechanisms. This could be distracting ourselves from tough things by drinking or doing drugs, like trying to numb ourselves or entertainment or pornography or any of these things like are none of them are necessarily right or wrong as Jason and I don't take a judgment about it, but we can examine our behavior and think like, are we doing this to avoid? Are we doing this to distract ourselves or numb ourselves? And we kind of have so much access to those things that it's like, oh, this is really tough. I don't know how to do this. So I'm going to do something else that gives me pleasure and makes me feel better. And I actually think that dating apps play a role in that as well. And I remember when, so I went on on the dating apps years ago, did it for a short amount of time, and I actually found them incredibly uncomfortable. But part of the reason I went on in the first place was I was trying to get outside of my comfort zone. And you often have to do this in the dating world, you know, like you can't just accept expect somebody to show up on your doorstep, especially if a huge part of the population is on the dating apps. You kind of got to meet them where they're at. Jason was very lucky in that he met his current girlfriend at the farmer's market, which is such a sweet story. Yeah. So you didn't have to go on the dating apps. Thank I know you God. You had some bad experiences there too. (laughs) But anyways, my point being is that I did that round of dating on the apps and then I got off them. Then I ended up dating somebody that I knew from my life previous, you know, came back into my life. We ended up dating. And then when that relationship ended, I considered going back on the dating apps. I was like, okay, I'm single now. Like, what am I going to do? And I remember very clearly thinking to myself, am I only going on this app just to make myself feel better while I'm in the midst of a breakup? And I bet you a lot of people do this in some way or another. It's like going on these apps can help you feel validated, especially because these apps are designed to reward you for looking a certain way or for writing something in your profile and you're getting all of this instant attention and you don't have to go and put effort into having a conversation with somebody in person. You don't have to go to a bar or a restaurant or you don't have to like go outside of your home. You can just sit in bed and scroll and scroll and scroll and these apps will match you with people. But then like even within those apps, you get ghosting. Like you'll match with somebody and you'll reach out And say something to them and then you'll never hear back. Or maybe they'll write you back one time and then you try to continue the conversation and it won't go on from there. And this happens for both men and women. And I mean, I guess it all depends on your sexual preferences, but certainly in a heterosexual dynamic, it's not like men are always doing this for women or women aren't doing this to men. I mean, both happen. Both sides of this happen. So the ghosting is also a very uncomfortable process of simply trying to connect with somebody in the first place. But anyways, my point here is that I think dating apps, there's this kind of culture of like, well, I'm just doing this to make myself feel better. I'm just doing this to get attention or be validated or or to numb myself. But I actually don't have an intention on taking this seriously and dating someone. But you don't know if somebody on the other end is taking it very seriously and and wanting to match. and so. If you match up with them and one person isn't serious and one person is, like that's really tricky too. I have so much to say in response to everything you just laid down. (laughs) Oh, man. 
I guess I just want to talk about really quickly my experience with dating apps, Whitney, in terms of my mental health and also what I've noticed about dating apps reflecting our collective cultural values. So, you know, when I was doing the dating app thing, and I, I think the first dating app I went on was way back in like 2002. I mean, it was rudimentary as hell back then, but I, Is I've this been- the app where you found, you had that story of go- yep. drive. Okay. That's right. Yep. Didn't you tell that story on an episode? I, I swear that I did. We're going to uh, have to try to locate that episode Yeah, and link to it in the show yeah. notes. If anybody wants to hear some more dating stories from us. Yeah. For the most part, I wouldn't say it's been a success, but it has been a success in being a mirror to me, understanding more about myself. And here's what I mean by that. I found that I was primarily using these dating apps when I felt really lonely. And I noticed that there was a specific time of day that I would start to feel extreme loneliness and it'd be right before bed. You know, I wanted somebody to cuddle with. I wanted somebody to to be there with me, you know, in bed, reading a book, fooling around, the kind of cutesy things you do when you're in a relationship. And so I found that to me it was acting as a dopamine dispenser. You know, I was using it to try and allay my loneliness and I would never swipe during the day being an entrepreneur and business partners with you and all the things that we do and have done, you know, I'd be on my game during the day. I'd be working and creating and doing the things we do. But right before bed, I'd jump on that damn phone and I would just be, you know, get those hits of dopamine because I felt so fucking lonely. The other thing too, just I think blowing this out on a more macro level with, I think that certainly Americans, there are other major countries I think that are also probably guilty of this because transnational corporations rule the world. That's another conversation. But I think as Americans in particular, we are addicted to the concept and the promise of new, better, more, and different. And the way that these dating apps work is they reinforce the commodification of people, right? So one of the reasons I got off dating apps is it hit me, first of all, that I was getting dopamine and I was feeling lonely and using this as kind of a, a drug dealer, but that I was swiping on women in these dating apps the same way that I was swiping for a brand new BMW or swiping for a new cat tree on Amazon. It was like, nope, nope, nope. Yep. Okay. I've narrowed it down to three. Cool, cool, cool. How much is it? And I realized that there's a reinforcement of the commodification of people. And here's why that's dangerous. And here's, we'll loop it all the way back to why I think people ghost. Because there is an upgrade culture as a result of this new, better, more indifferent mentality we have in our consumer culture that, yeah, you know, if this one doesn't work out, the next one will. I could just trade up. And I think we've commodified people and reduced them to a material sense and not seeing their humanity, therefore ghosting them, not being respectful, not being communicative, not being in integrity, because we know there's another one right around the corner. Like if we do, we go on a date and it's like, nah, I'm not really into him or her. We just jump right back on the app and can shop for another one. That's what so, I was saying earlier. And that's why I was asking like your perspective yeah. on commitment, you know? Yeah. I mean, to me, it ended up feeling, Whitney, like I was shopping for a woman. Like literally, like I was shopping for someone. Which can we pause for a second? Sure. And like sure. point out the fact that your current girlfriend is someone that you met while shopping. <laughs> yeah, but I wasn't looking for a girlfriend. I was just looking I for bread and vegan cheese and 
And I didn't even want to go to the booth. You're like, look, these are great pickles. I'm like, I don't need any fucking pickles. You're like, go to the pickle booth. And I was like, okay. So I wasn't even looking for cultured vegetables. You're like, no, they've got great cultured vegetables. And then Laura's there. Um, Lo and behold. Lo and behold. But You looked up and had a connection. I think why that was so wonderful, other than how copacetic our energies are, is I wasn't looking. I had no intention. I wasn't going to the market that day of like, I'm going to find a lady. I just, I had no mentality in that regard at all. I just go back to Whitney, my issue with dating apps and the way that they are constructed and their UI and their interface and how they work is it's the same architecture and mechanism that people use to shop for things they're using to quote shop for people. I think it really is subconsciously commodifying humans in people's minds. I really do believe that. I agree with that too. And this is part of the reason that I didn't feel good about going on there. And I, I'm trying to tap back in because I haven't thought about <laughs> dating apps in a while. I just remember feeling like I don't want a, like I had to step back and think, would I even want to date a guy that's using a dating app? You know, is that the type of man that I want to be with? And And then that's actually kind of judgmental, right? Because you know, there isn't like one type of person. And just because you go on a dating app doesn't mean that you're a certain type of person. But I just thought like, this isn't the kind of environment that I want to meet someone in. And like the story that of you meeting Laura is so sweet. And I think a lot of us really yearn for that. But the problem is because dating apps are so prevalent now that you could be in a public setting with somebody who's single, but because they're both of you are so used to the dating app world or out of your comfort zones with actually trying to date in person, like you might not even strike up a conversation with somebody who could be across the room for you. And it's like amazing that you and Laura even connected, right? Because of this world that we're in. And so I think that we have to really practice being very intentional in all of these different environments and not just like going into these comfort zones of like, it's much more comfortable for me to be in a dating app than to talk to somebody in person or strike up a conversation with a stranger. Like you really do have to step out of that comfort zone and try something different. You know, the other side of ghosting too, coming back to the fact that it's not just about our romantic lives. It can actually happen with friends as well. And as I mentioned earlier, we have talked about this in a few recent episodes about how you can reach out to a friend and not hear back from them either for a long period of time or, or sometimes ever. Like it's not as, I mean, I'm trying to think I've been broken up with by friends. Yeah. I mean, and... I, I remember some situations that were really challenging for you. You know. And you haven't had that experience, Jason? You haven't gone through a friend breakup? You certainly have. I mean, in a way, I, there's one person in particular I'm thinking of that I don't know if you would consider it ghosting, but like you just stopped inviting this person and sure it's not the only one, but one particular person I'm thinking of like that no longer felt like a fit in your life. You just stopped inviting them to your parties. Yeah. And, and isn't and, that kind of ghosting, would you say? I don't know, because in some cases, there's a natural distance that I think gets created sometimes in relationships. It's not for any kind of ill will or bad feelings or a fracture necessarily. It's just, I mean, I think there are some people you just naturally grow apart from. And then sometimes you see them again. I mean, I, 
have a good friend, Theron, that I hadn't seen. I hadn't physically seen him for two years. And we got together about four days ago, and it literally felt like no time had passed. We were talking about music and art and all kinds of, you know, spiritual things and like, you know, getting really deep. And I spent about an hour and a half with him. And it literally felt like like it was yesterday when I saw him. You know what I mean? And I hadn't physically seen him in two years. But I think other relationships, I don't know. I don't see something like that as ghosting as much as sometimes things just, they drift apart and maybe they'll drift back together. Maybe they won't. Right. Yeah. It actually reminds me of somebody else that I think I kind of ghosted as a friend. And it was purely that I really didn't feel like I wanted this person in my life at the time and still don't, to be frank. (laughs) I thought about it a lot. Like, should I communicate to this person that I don't want to be friends with them? You know, and I didn't. And sometimes I feel a little guilty about that because so much can be cleared up with clear communication, but it does take a lot of courage to share with somebody that you don't want them in your life for whatever reason, you know? And hell yeah, it takes a ton of courage. I'm not perfect at it. Like I think luckily I don't end up in that scenario very often, but it does feel a lot easier to just stop responding to messages. Yeah. It's an interesting thing because I have been reading some articles lately and just randomly seeing that we are wired in terms of our social connections for about 100 to 150 primary connections in our life. You know, that on a neurological level, in terms of intimate, connected relationships, we can manage whatever that means, but properly manage, stay connected to. We are still very much kind of wired tribally, where, you know, depending on how society goes, these articles have been talking about that perhaps community slash upgraded tribal living is how humanity is going to continue sustainably on the planet, that these large megalopolises and 8 billion people competing for resources in a frantic, fervent search for more, better, different, and new, as I mentioned, is is going to ultimately you know destroy our societies. But we go back to this idea of managing friendships, connections, social interactions. I would have to agree, Whitney. I mean, beyond, say, 100 people, you talk about parties and launch parties and birthday parties, things we've done over the years. I don't think I've gotten past 100 to 150 people when I've made those lists. So I guess my point is when there are people who are like, hey, let's stay in touch. Let's stay connected. Let's do this. Let's do that. And we have 50,000, 500,000, a million followers. We've got 5,000 people on Facebook and 4,000 people here. We're not wired neurologically to handle that many connections on an intimate level. We're not. It's not possible to manage that many intimate connections. So you bring that up in the ebb and flow of intimacy and relationships or letting go or letting them dissolve. I don't know. I, I think it's kind of unavoidable given how many people we're in contact with in the digital age. It's a little bit unavoidable. Right. And I think that also comes back to the dating apps where you're swiping through so many people and then you start to have conversations with a bunch of people. And that's just kind of unnatural in a lot of ways, whereas or not something that we're used to as human beings. We're, We're not currently wired for it. And maybe we will become more wired for it. Social media is still so new and technology is still so new for humanity that we have a lot of adapting to do to it. And It's going to take a big shift. And as comfortable and familiar as it might seem, to your point, Jason, it's not, it's still really new. And 
that might also explain why a lot of this feels like unfamiliar territory and risky and scary is because we're still learning to find the right ways to do a lot of these things. Yeah, very much so. And and I also think that I still experience periods of overwhelm when I have a lot of emails in my inbox and the DMs on four different apps, managing two email accounts, all, you know, all those things. It's, it's again, sometimes where, where I feel the overwhelm button getting pressed because I suppose some part of my brain is like, there's too many people asking for intimacy. There's too many people asking for connection. And I think, you know, I don't want to say the older I get, but as I go on through life, I want to nourish the deep connections, the more substantial connections that I have and really nourish those and keep those going as opposed to having a big circle where there's not a lot of intimacy. That doesn't really interest me anymore. And I think part of my sometimes feelings of pushback or wanting to get off social media is because I'm like, yeah, I see this from a social perspective. I see this from a business perspective, a branding perspective, you know, disseminating information. It has a wonderful way of bringing people together for different causes. But when there's that many people wanting some semblance of an intimate connection through all the DMs and all the emails, you know, there are times when I'm just like, I don't want to respond. I just don't want to. It's too many. It's too much. Fair enough. I think a lot of us <laughs> get to that place. And it actually sounds really sweet and comforting to just have a few people in your life. It just sounds so much easier if you only have a few people that you're really close to, you know? Well, and I, hmm? I also think too, like social media has done an interesting thing around language, Whitney. And I know how much you and I love to decode language here on the podcast. And I think the word friend has the interpretation of that and the meaning of that has become very loose and very fluid and very interesting. And, you know, when I use the word friend, what I really mean is like somebody who ha I have like a deep level of trust and intimacy and connection with. I can't agree more. In fact, I've been really intentional about calling somebody an acquaintance instead of a friend. Yes. Because yes. I take the word friend really seriously. I take a lot of words that I use very seriously. And maybe they have different meanings for different people. And, and somebody might not like mean it in the full extent of the word. But we can take responsibility for the words that we use. And there's nothing wrong with calling somebody an acquaintance, you know, or an old friend or somebody that used to be a close friend. I mean, you can really phrase it and frame it in a very specific way to clarify what that means. And I think when you do that, it helps you better understand who that person is and what they mean to you. And, and you can pay attention to the words that you're using. I think, you know, with Facebook, for example, like they call them Facebook friends. <laughs> and with that app and that platform, I think we started to redefine what it means to have a friend, you know? It's also sometimes people use the word friend when it's convenient. Like, oh, I'm friends with this person. If you're trying to like name drop totally, or something like totally. that. And that feels a little weird too. Like, and I think quarantine, COVID-19 has really revealed to us who we're very close with. Like the people that I consider friends are the people I think about a lot. And I want to text and I want to have FaceTime calls with. And I, I want to make sure that I'm in frequent communication with. But 
To your point, too, going back to your friend Theron, who I saw on your list of, of birthday invites this year, Jason, and I, I was pleasantly surprised to see his name after all this time. There are certainly people that come in and out of your life. And honestly, sometimes it takes a lot of effort to remember to call somebody or text them. And I've really tried to be more intentional about that, too. And there's actually been periods of time where I've put it on my to-do list and I'll have like a list of people that I want to be in touch with and I'll write it down and cross off the list every time I text them or call them. I have to actually remind myself to do those things. Otherwise, I'll just go about my life and not think much about it. That doesn't mean that someone's not important to me, but it just means that there's a lot going on. And just like we encourage you as a listener to do like time blocking, like socializing on your schedule is something you might have to do, especially if you get caught up in the whirlwind of other elements of your life, whether it's your professional life or your family life or or maybe you're just really struggling on a personal level and it's tough for you to reach out to people. Sometimes scheduling it can really help you and committing to doing it and making sure that you're in touch with people which is actually a really important element of your mental health and something we brought up in our latest ebook release called From Chaos to Calm. If you haven't downloaded a copy of that yet, you can get it on our website, wellevator.com, which is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. If you go to the free resources section, From Chaos to Calm is, is one of our ebooks, and we have a whole section about making sure that you're prioritized socializing, even if it's as simple as a text message to somebody. But research has found that seeing somebody's face, being able to take in their facial expressions along with the intonation of their voice actually causes you to feel more connected to one another. So if you can, having that FaceTime with somebody is really powerful. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing because you know, obviously being with a person and, and having physical, I guess if it's your love language for me, you know, physical touch has been an interesting part of this in terms of the social connections during COVID and, and staying mentally and emotionally healthy with because, yeah, physical touch being my number one lo love language with social distancing. When I have seen people, there's that instinct to go in for a hug. I love hugs and I there are definitely friends that are world-class huggers. You know, you just feel so nourished by and embraced by them. And it's it's been interesting to observe that instinct kind of apropos of this of going on a socially distanced hike or, I, you know, I've seen people with our masks on and whatnot, but that initial instinct of just like, I want to give you a hug. It's not really appropriate at this moment. That's been an interesting thing, too, of, of wanting that deeper level of nourishment and physical connection. Absolutely. Well, as this episode comes to a close, I actually have some queries for our Frequently Asked Queries section that tie into this subject matter. Before we get into them, Jason, are there any brands that you want to shout out? That's something that we've been intentional about doing in each episode is bringing up related brands. So is there any brand that comes to mind that <laughs> this conversation makes you think of? Well, I've mentioned these guys before on a previous episode, but I feel I, I ought to bring them up because I got a really great surprise care package in the mail today. And there are, oh, there, are there are a few brands. Who? There are a few brands that do this where I'm not expecting a package and then they'll just they'll just lay the love on me. So I believe it was in the episode with Max Goldberg on organic living where I mentioned uh, Great Nola. 
the granola brand yeah, that you turned me on to via the Hollywood Supermart. It, it, and it, excuse me, I've asked if I could have some, <laughs> and I feel like you keep hoarding it for yourself, Jason. It's so, it's not fair. It's so good, though. That is mean. All right, I'll you save you to, back. You need to set aside you. some right now. I will. I'll write your name on it. Because I did share my care package, which I'll shout out that company, too, while, when you're done. All right. I'll write your name on it so that I don't plow through the bag. It's so good. They sent the matcha green tea and then the charcoal cocoa chia. I mash them both together. It's like this beautiful, one tastes kind of like an Oreo sugar cookie and the other tastes like matcha tea. And I throw them together. I use them on smoothie toppings. I've crumbled them like into pie crusts. I throw them on top of ice cream. And then, you know, I do the whole late night, 10 p.m. I want a small bowl of granola before I go to bed. So I love it because they're super clean ingredients. They're made with coconut oil. They have functional benefits. Obviously, the detox benefits with charcoal and the L-theanine and the brain-boosting, mood-elevating benefits of the matcha. So tastes great. The ingredients are amazing. Check out Great Nolets with numeral eight. We'll have that in the show notes for this episode at wellevator.com. But big shout out to Erica. She's up in Northern California hooking up all of the Silicon Valley companies with this granola. So I'm not the only one. We are not the only ones, Whitney who are proselytizing about the amazingness of Great Nola. Well, since you brought up your recent care package, I'll bring up mine too, which I will remind you again, Jason, that I shared some of this with you. So, you know, part of our relationship is giving back what you receive. So I hope that I get to receive some of your granola. I'm going to take a Sharpie after this episode and write your name on it. Okay. Well, what I shared with Jason recently is a lovely care package of CBD chocolate bars that I got from this company. And I hope that I pronounced their name right. Do you think it's pronounced Kefla? Does that sound right, Jason? Yeah. K-E-F-L-A? Yeah, I think it's Kefla, probably. So they're a Colorado-based company that makes certified organic CBD chocolate and cacao bars. And they sent me two flavors. One was their dark and salty, which is my favorite one. I loved it. The other is a turmeric, which I like not as much as you, Jason. So if you play your cards right, maybe we can do another trade and I'll give you a few more of the turmeric bars. And one of these days, we need to do another giveaway on this podcast. So for you, the listener, one way that you can stay in touch is to connect with us on social media and or our website. So when you download an ebook like from Chaos to Calm that we mentioned earlier, you'll get put on our mailing list. And that's how we can keep you in the loop if we have a giveaway. So I want to be intentional about giving away some products. And maybe we'll do this with one of these companies. Kefla is really cool. They are members of 1% for the planet, which means that they donate 1% of all gross sales to environmental nonprofits. And their chocolate tastes delicious. It's full spectrum CBD. We talked about CBD in depth on a separate episode, which we'll link to in the show notes at wellevator.com. So if you're curious about CBD, be sure to check out that episode. We talked about a number of different brands that we love. And this would have been on that list if I had had more experience with them. Jason did remind me that we tried their products in the past. They also have a matcha mint flavor that they sell at a local store. Plus, they have a cafe mocha flavor. I don't know if all of their flavors are vegan because there's a milk or there's a mint chocolate. Oh, maybe they are all. I'm not positive just looking at this, but I, I'm assuming 
all of their products are vegan, but double check before you buy anything. They're lovely. They have very simple, pure ingredients, and they're sweetened with coconut sugar, which Jason really appreciated. They're freaking delicious, too. And I just want to also have an asterisk, Whitney, real quick, because sure. the, the other day when we were at the podcast studio, which is not currently accepting guests, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it will be sometime again soon. You gave me the, the sea salt and you gave me the turmeric to try. And each one is 25 milligrams of CBD. Which I did find out after the fact is two. there's two servings. You're only supposed to have half the bar. And oh. I was like, what? So I guess you're supposed to take them more like a supplement. You're not. The bars are not huge. That would. <laughs> I assumed that you were supposed to eat the whole bar in one serving, but technically it's two. Wait, so you're telling me that it's. <laughs> You're telling me it's 25 milligrams per serving. No, no, no. The whole bar is 25 milligrams, but there's two servings. So it's 12.5 milligrams per serving. Got it. Okay. So I had two bars, whole bars. So I had 50 milligrams. <laughs> and how and did then you feel? About 90 minutes later, I got home and I was like, oh, I'm buzzing. Really? Yeah. I wasn't high, but I was definitely buzzing. Like, whoa, okay. So two bars, you will feel it. Well, I have been very mindful of when I eat the Kefla chocolate. I It tastes so good that I want to have it all the time. But because it has CBD, I've, I've really slowed down, which has helped me be more intentional about my chocolate habits. All right. Now that we've mentioned some of our favorite brands, and if you're new to our show, or, or this is kind of like a recent thing that we're doing where we mention brands that we love throughout the episodes. And we also do this new segment called Frequently Asked Queries. And one of the queries happens to tie very nicely into the subject matter today. And this query was how to get over someone. <laughs> I think this is super Ooh. interesting and we could do a whole episode on this. So maybe I we will we yeah. just give like our condensed answer. And then if this is of interest to others, we can dive further in. So if you'd like to share with us what your interests are, which episodes or what topics in the episodes you'd like to hear about as a listener, please reach out to us via email at hello at wellevator.com. That's our email address. You can go to our website and leave a comment at podcast.wellevator.com. You can reply to any of our emails if you sign up for a list. And you can also direct message us through platforms like Instagram and Facebook and our social media handles at Wellevator. We love hearing from you. So if you're listening to this episode and you want to hear more about our advice on how to get over someone, I should also say perspective, not necessarily advice, but based on our experiences and our research, what would you say about getting over someone, Jason? Well, I do think that dedicating an episode or a sizable chunk of an episode is a really great idea for this topic. I think a Cliff's Notes version of this answer is probably time. And when I say that, I don't mean time heals all wounds. Time plus emotional or physical distance from that person. And also working on any wounds or trauma that you can identify potentially contributed to the dissolution of that relationship or any wounds or trauma that were created by that relationship. I mean, I don't mean to make this sound formulaic because Whitney and I notoriously do not like formulas and think that they are 
pedantic and too simplified. I think time, distance, and really working on healing your wounds and your trauma, that's the immediate thing that comes up for me. What about you? Hmm. Well, I have two perspectives. One, I agree with the Times statement and certainly doing self-work, personal development can really help a lot because oftentimes relationships trigger a lot of these old emotions within us. Classically, challenges we've had with our parents or parental figures, relationships can bring up trauma from past relationships. They can bring up issues of self-worth, even as I mentioned, like that guy that ghosted me, you know, like that triggered some insecurities within me that I still carry sometimes and wondering like, was there something about me that wasn't good enough for this guy? And even though it didn't matter what he thought about me necessarily, it was like I started to apply that to, oh my gosh, like who else am I not good enough for? Right. So a lot of those things can get triggered through relationships. And that's why relationships can be some of our greatest opportunities to learn. But in terms of getting over someone, I think it's not that simple. And we really need to give ourselves a lot of grace when it comes to this because there is no formula and every relationship is different. There is like this um, cliche formula for if you've dated for this amount of time, it's going to take you X amount of time to get over them. And it's no. something like, like if you dated for six months, it should only take you six days to get over something like that. Right. Which I think is absolute bullshit. I just believe that humans are always looking for a formula because it's very comforting. And my best advice is actually based on the concept of this podcast, which is you have to just sit with it and it can be incredibly uncomfortable going through a breakup or feeling rejected by someone. Getting over someone could be romance. It could be friendship or it can be family. Sometimes we feel the need to distance ourselves from family members. It could be a professional thing like getting over the rejection that you had from employer that didn't hire you, or it could be that you got fired, or it could be that you had a conflict at work. I mean, there's so many scenarios in our lives in which we try to get over something, but rushing through it is certainly not the answer. So you just have to look at this scenario that you're in and allow yourself to process it and know that it just might take time. It might take a lot of reflection but I think trying not to force yourself to get over it is also a big key here or try to rush yourself through yes. it or convince yourself out of it. Or, I mean, there have been times where it's taken me years and years and years to get over someone, especially romantically. Gosh, I mean, there was one guy from, that I met when I was in high school and it it took me a solid, and I kid you not, a solid 10 years to really work through that because it was so hot and cold. It was on again, off again. And, and to Jason's point, sometimes having distance can help, but I've also been in scenarios where distance hasn't helped. And I've been in scenarios in which it felt like I did everything I possibly could to get over this person and nothing worked. And that was actually an incredibly humbling experience. And a huge life lesson that sometimes it just is. And part of the spiritual practice 
is allowing what is versus being in resistance to what is. And I think when you're trying to figure out how to get over someone, you're not just letting it be. Yeah, you can't logic your way out of it either. You can't rationalize or use logic to get your way out of that feeling. It's something that is a very complicated thing depending on your level of addiction or fixation or projection or attachment. There's a lot of layers of psychology around how we bond or get attached to people. I think there is one thing though, Whitney, that there's always been a moment for me where I will have a feeling that I'm finally over someone. And it's, again, it's not something you can force or logic your way out of or rationalize or anything like that. But I remember recently, earlier this year, having a feeling of finally being over someone. Like it was a really, really hardcore breakup. And it was such a feeling of liberation and freedom. Like my heart was like, oh, thank you. You know, it was like, it was just that feeling of like, I'm not thinking about this anymore. I'm not pining for them. I'm not. And it's not like I was, but it was just, it was a flash that I got. I remember I was in my office and I was working on music and it was just this feeling of like, I am a hundred percent in every cell of my being over this person. And it, it, that is a glorious feeling, but you can't rush it. You can't rush it. You can't force it. Absolutely. And I know that feeling too. And it is really interesting when you examine it. And and likewise, I've I've been on the other end where I'm like, I think I'm over this person. And then I reflect on it and I'm like, nope, still not over them. It's yeah. still there. <laughs> totally. <laughs> you know, and yep. it's interesting how I know growing up, like it just seemed like there was so much formulaic advice in magazines and books and TV shows. And it seemed like relationships were easy to navigate and explain. And and going back to what I was saying earlier, the older I get, the more complex relationships seem to be, which sounds counterintuitive. You'd think you get older and things get easier, but I think more of life is revealed to you. And through your experiences, you start to see how complex life is for better or for worse. This leads me to my next query, which I, I also think could be its its own episode, but we can give our cliff notes. Is it I think we've, I've asked you this before, Jason, but to clarify, is it Cliff's notes? Like Cliff is a person or is it Cliff notes? It's with an S, Cliff's notes. Like apostrophe? Like no, this there's is, no. Cliff they, is the no, one. <laughs> nope. We talked about this in a previous episode. I know. It's C-L-I-F-S, no apostrophe. Okay, got it. Does Cliff notes even still exist? Like, is that a thing like we had in, when we were in high school? I don't know. I haven't been in college in... 20 years. So <laughs> I am not the person to say. I'm sure a cursory internet search could figure that out pretty quickly. Well, I'll give another shout out to a kind of brand that I really like called Blinkist. And they are like the kind of newer version of that where they summarize a lot of like business and personal development books. And what's cool is that I think all of their summaries you can read in 10 minutes or less. I could be wrong, but I, I feel like that's about right. And they have audio versions. So you could listen to the summaries as if it was a super short audio book and you have to pay for it. But if you like to read a lot of books and you don't feel like you have enough time, that could be a great way to learn a bunch of lessons really quickly. So I'll link to that service in the show notes as well. All right. The next query that we're going to try to summarize as best we can and maybe revisit in an upcoming episode. This query was finding unconditional love. Hmm. 
It's a deep one. I guess for me, I think about the urge to find unconditional love. You know, it's like, yeah. A, is there really such thing? And B, do we ever really get the type of unconditional love that we experience from our parents or parental figures, which is, or even like siblings. I, I know you're, you are an only child, but the, the probably the closest that I've really felt to unconditional love is probably from my sister, even more so than my parents in a way. Because I feel like parents are always, in a way, at least in my experience with my parents, is that there's like a feeling of never good enough. Like they always want me to be the best I can be. And so there's like a pressure to be more than I currently am in a way. At least that's how I've perceived it. Even though deep down, I know my parents love me and they've been incredibly supportive of me. With my sister, though, there's a different level of love that feels more unconditional. And it's like the closest I've had to what I imagine it's like to have a child and experience that as a mother. Because with my sister, I just love, I love her so deeply and in a way that no one else has come close to. And we just have such a deep connection and like we drive each other crazy, but like that love is so strong and it's remarkable in a lot of ways. Yeah, this is something I've sat with a lot and meditated on, you know, in the sense that we put parameters and conditions and agreements on a lot of relationships. I mean, whether they're contractual in terms of a wedding or a business arrangement, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because there can be boundaries and parameters and agreements. But when you say conditions, it's almost as if if you behave a certain way or act a certain way or make this series of choices, I will approve of you, right? Or I'll love you. But if you make a decision that is outside of these actions or these parameters or these conditions we've placed, then I'm not going to love you anymore. It kind of goes to the nature of love in general, where I feel like a lot of what we have been conditioned to perceive as love through media and movies and books and music and a lot of things in culture is, is it's not really love. It's more conditional affection. Whereas, like I said, if you behave this way and you uphold our agreement and you do all these things to the T, then I'll love and accept you. But if you do anything outside of those parameters, I'm going to withdraw my love. And that's not unconditional. That's extremely conditional. So it's a deep examination of what is the actual nature of love. And being not avatars or ascended masters or saints, how do we get closer to removing the conditions around love. And if we remove the conditions around love, does that make it more pure? You brought up familial love, Whitney, you know, but there's also romantic love. There's agape, more of a universal or brotherly love, a philos, which is a brotherly love. I mean, there's, we talked about this in a previous episode, the Greeks had so many great words because there were so many different kinds of love. So when I hear unconditional love, I guess it goes to me toward almost like a universal, godlike, spiritual, all-encompassing love that maybe even transcends human understanding. Mm. Yeah, I keep going back to the the desire to have it. How we at the core, each of us just want to be loved, and a lot of us are yearning for the type of love that we had from our parents or parental figures, and we spend so much of our lives searching for it, or if we didn't have that at all, like the lack of that love and just wanting to receive that from a romantic partner, 
And there's so much fear tied into love and vulnerability. And this is what I mean. Like relationships are really tricky. And and some of us just feel like we'll never get the love that we want. Or maybe we end up in relationships and they're, they turn out to not be what we want them to be because we had all these expectations for it. And it's a tricky thing. So I think just examining what's important to you and why it's important. And then where can you find that in your life currently? Can you find that within yourself? I think a lot of the times what we're looking for is really from within. And they say, one of my favorite books is called How to Love Yourself and Sometimes Other People. And I love that title so much because this book is about learning to love yourself first. And then maybe once you've found and cultivated that self-love, maybe then you can love other people or sometimes you can love other people as they say. And I really do think most things begin with us as individuals, as as cliche as that might sound. But when, as Jason was saying, if if we've done that inner work on ourselves, it's actually easier to love other people and accept, receive love from other people. And sometimes we just have so many barriers up, so many walls up because of all that hurt that's swimming around within us. And we have to really deal with that first before we can allow in love from other people. And and this applies even with our parental figures. You know, there can be a lot of wounding from them. And I've experienced this myself of keeping certain people at arm's length because I've felt really hurt by them. And I have to do a lot of work to allow them to love me and to accept their love. So that's the the short end of it, I guess, is we'd like to have a kind of funny query that we include. And we kind of already had one at the beginning with that eggplant (laughs) query I brought up. Just to throw in another one for fun, somebody searched for don't half-ass two things, whole-ass one thing. I agree with that. (laughs) Why the hell that's related to our podcast? No clue. I would agree. Yes. If you're going to do it, do it with your whole ass. I really like that too. And (laughs) when I looked it up, I think that's a quote from the show Parks and Recreation, which I've actually never seen. Have you ever seen that show, Jason? Nope. Never got into it. I would like to give it a try. It looks like it would be my type of humor. But I thought that kind of ties into what we're talking about here is that I think a lot of us go through life half-assing things and because we can get away with it, whether it's ghosting or commitment or any type of these dynamics we have with people. But what if you put your whole ass into things, your whole ass into your relationships and you were really brave, courageous, honest, had great communication with people. If you're willing to do that work, I think a lot of greatness can come out of that. So I would agree. In the words of the great philosopher and sage of modern times, Ice Cube, you can do it. Put your ass into it. Sage advice really is timeless. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Wait, I think you should sing it as the closing moments of this episode, Jason. I will do it in my classic Vegas lounge singer voice. Oh, boy. You can do it. Put your ass into it. Hey, you can do it. Put your ass into it. What? What? You can do it. Put your ass into it. Come on. You can do it. You can do it. Put your ass into it. I feel like you combined some genres there. That wasn't quite a lounge singer. It was like a little bit of a jazzy take on it. Yeah, it was. You're right. 
which I enjoyed. I hope other people appreciate it. You're not going to attempt to do it in the original style, Jason? I will butcher it. I felt compelled to do a swingy, jazzy, loungy thing, which you get what you get. You get what you get. I actually, you know, (laughs) as an aside, some of the strongest marijuana I've ever smoked in my life was smoking it with Ice Cube. Wait, what do you mean with? I was doing, uh, I did two movies as a personal chef and nutrition coach with Woody Harrelson back in the day. And Woody, who is a known purveyor of uh, all things cannabis and CBD and marijuana related, he starred in the movie Rampart along with Ice Cube. And Ice Cube would come on his days on set and we would, I was making all the food so he'd come and eat and then we'd smoke down. So as an aside, uh, the times that I have hung out with Ice Cube on set eating food, he had some of the most ridiculously strong and potent marijuana I've ever had in my life. Like the point where you were just decimated after one hit. Decimated. So Ice Cube, your weed curation skills, legendary, sir. Legendary. Wow. I have never heard this story and I'm really grateful that you brought it up. It's funny how um, you can have these interesting moments with... uh, well-known figures as a part of living in Los Angeles. Yeah. Lots of interesting stories the two of us could share. Very random. Maybe a whole episode and not as a humble brag of like, hey, look who we've done. (laughs) But like literally like, oh, do you want to hear this story about so-and-so? All right, buckle up. (laughs) Buckle the fuck up. Yep. Yeah. That's good. That's a good one, Jason. Thanks for indulging. And well, sounds like a good note to end on. I suppose it is. And for you, dear listener, thanks for being with us and getting uncomfortable as we do here on This Might Get Uncomfortable, brought to you by Wellevator. If you want to dive into any of the resources we've shared here today, the books, the articles, the great companies and brands that we love to turn you on to, you can visit our website, which is podcast.wellevator.com. The show notes for this episode and all of our episodes as we approach Our 100-episode mark soon is coming up. You can access all of those great resources on our website. And of course, as Whitney mentioned previously, we always love to hear from you. So please send us a direct message or an email. We are on at Wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R, on all of the major social media platforms. And our direct email that we will read and respond to personally is hello at Wellevator.com. So until next time, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to download our brand new free ebook, as Whitney mentioned, From Chaos to Calm. It's got our 12 favorite steps for resourcing more resilience and connection and peace of mind during this extremely challenging and bizarre time on planet Earth. It feels like we're living in a a Terry Gilliam movie from the 80s or some psychedelic weird Dali painting. But anyway, there are ways we're going to make it through together. Check out that ebook at our website, and we will see you again for another episode of This Might Get Uncomfortable. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.